Hi everyone, welcome to a collaborative podcast between the NEXT Committee and the Nurses and Allied Healthcare Professionals Committee. Today my guest is Julia Bebenishchi, who is a senior nurse and works as an academic consultant at Hadassah Hebrew University Medical Center in Jerusalem at Israel. She is an assistant professor, nursing, teaching masters of clinical nursing to her students. She has been a member of ECICM since 2000. In 2014, was awarded as the first nurse honorary member. She was a cornerstone by her efforts and work in many committees and sections in the society. In 2022, he was awarded the title of an ambassador of the World Federation of Critical Care Nurses. Her PhD from from the University of Plymouth in the United Kingdom was on the nurse's role in the transition from curative to palliative care and intensive care. Currently, she is the head of the European Critical Care Doctoral Educated Nurses Group. Welcome, Julia. Podcast. Thank you, Ahmed. Julia and myself will talk today about an interesting and a crucial topic in our daily practice in intensive care, which is ethics of end of life care. So, Julia. Can you tell me more about the concept of end-of-life care in our daily practice? Thank you for that question, Ahmed. Yes, the concept of end-of-life care. I think the main objective when we talk about the concept of end-of-life care is looking at our goals of care for each patient. When our goals of care for curative goal we can we feel that we can no longer get to that curative goal then we have to move our goals of care to to end of life care or palliative care if we keep trying and trying and trying to vitalize our patient and our patients and we are the disease of the patient is not responding to every effort that we know possible then we have to rethink our goals of care so the concept is rethinking our goals of care. We have to be, but the challenge and the problem with this is that it's very uncertain and unclear when the patient is not responding. Because what if we wait one more day or one more hour or one more week? Maybe he will respond to our care. So this is the big problem. That's really interesting. I will take one of the words you have mentioned now about the challenges so in your opinion that what are the challenges in the process of end of life care because it's not an easy thing to just say we are going to switch from an active treatment to a palliative treatment i absolutely agree ahmed when do we decide that our hemodialysis or our CRT is, is no longer effective. When do we decide that we're weaning the patient, we should try to wean the patient off ECMO, and if he doesn't respond, then it's end of life care. What if we wait one more day? So the, this, not just 
um, the dosage that we're giving or not just the efforts that we're investing in our patients is clear. We don't know the time limit that we should be trying these efforts and all this investment. We don't know when enough time is enough time. How do we measure that? Do we measure it because one family, because one patient has many, many family members that are very, very worried and don't want to lose their mother or father, so then we'll try one more day or one more hour. So the, we have to take many, many components and elements and factors into our decision making. When, when is enough enough? Or when is too much too much? Okay. From your experience, how do you handle it? First of all, I think the most important, uh, the most important concept is shared decision-making or brainstorming together with all the key shareholders. And who are the key shareholders? The physicians, the consulting physician, if it's a surgical patient or hematology patient, those consultants also have to be involved in the discussion. The ICU most experienced physician that's on that day, as well as the residents and the fellows. Of course, the nursing staff, the dietitian, the physical therapist, anyone and everyone who's involved with the care, and also the family members. We have to all think together. We have to all say, are we ready? What's, what's going on with this patient? What's going on with all the organs in the body? Are, is the disease responding? Is the disease more a overcoming than any efforts that we can do. And a, what about our sedation level? Is it too too deep? Should we try to see if the relieve lessen the amount of sedation, give less sedation to see maybe the patient will respond. So there are many factors that have to go in, into a, deciding together in a shared decision making model on what and everyone has to put their input in and, we, and it's a negotiation and a compromise of everyone thinking together what's what's best in this case for this patient maybe waiting another day may even if everyone thinks that there's no more a response that we're we're getting from this patient but if the family asks for a little more time we'll say okay we can give you a little more time but also put a time limit on that Another day, another hour, but not any longer than that. If we're all, the team is on the same the same page of consensus of what's going on with this patient. Thank you, Julia. I think from what you're saying, it brings up a lot of questions up in my mind. So the first question I would like to ask you about, there are some situations where you have like a, it's an equivocal situation where you're not certain that we reach to a state where the, where the pathology is not reversible and there is a multi-organ dysfunction, maybe multi-organ failure, but we don't know that if we carry it on, this will be a survivable situation or it's not sustainable at all. So from my experience, Sometimes when we end up in when we end up in these situations, we ask the opinions of other consultants and we 
also do other investigations and examinations such as brainstem testing, maybe go for another CT head, maybe go for an MRI, maybe go for an EEG. Do you think from your experience, what do you think from your experience, this is something you normally do in the equivocal situations or not? Um, we rarely send a patient for an MRI, but an or an EEG, because I'm thinking I've just I've been reading a book by Wes Ely called Every Deep Drawn Breath. And he has hooked up his patients on deep sedation to EEG, EEGs, and he has done a study, and there was absolutely no brain activity just on deep sedation. So I don't know how much I would um, rely on an EEG to tell me if the patient, there's no brain activity, yes or no. And even if I stop the sedation, I don't know how long it takes for all that medication to uh, be secreted from the body. I don't know how much of it is really in each and every neuron and each and every piece of tissue of the body in order to be released, uh, re totally released and secreted from the body and there's none left. So I don't know how much I would rely on that. But I understand your feeling towards let's get to the most certain diagnosis as possible. And I don't think in, we have definitive um, tests to look for brain death, but I think very few of our patients die of brain death in the ICU, and they mostly die because we have orchestrated the end-of-life care. We've either withhold or withdrawn therapy, and that's how our patients die. So I understand the urge and the, and the desire for getting a certain diagnosis, but um, I think that's not the case in most cases. But I think what we are trying to do here is not is, well, yes, we would like to have a diagnosis, but we would like to have some sort or set some sort of prognostic factors, you know, if this is a reversible pathology or not, and if the multi-organ dysfunction, which, which has occurred in the context of the clinical scenario, has led to a, a reversible situation or not. And I think I totally agree with you that it is... It goes back to the multidisciplinary team approach and discussing it uh, with the different members of the team and speaking and speaking with the family and the next of kin to explore what's their wishes and what were the wishes of the patient himself. And taking it from there, you have mentioned earlier that we speak to the family and I've said that as well. I think there are some sort of social challenges in the end of life and the end of life care process, can you tell me more about? That? I yeah, I so, so agree with you. There are, um, I think, in order to become a skillful and competent uh, ICU uh, clinician, either a nurse or physician or social worker or anyone who works in our ICU, physical therapist, we have to be competent and skillful in the way we communicate. We have to communicate always, always to the family and to our team members that we are caring for these patients, no matter what happens to them. We are not stopping 
our care. We will always care for the patients. We may change the goals of care. We may change what our, um, where we're going with this patient, but we will never stop caring for the patient. So we have to be very careful on how we communicate what we what we're trying to do and always ask for the family's opinion and what they think is happening and what do they think um what do they expect will be happening what do they anticipate and by asking them the family questions we can kind of fine tune how we communicate with them what they understand of the situation and then we can communicate. So using our communication and how we talk and listen to family members is uh, we have to learn how to do that as best as we can. And when you know how to do it well, it's very, very, very satisfying. I think Julia, you're totally right. And I will take from what you have said the word communication. I think communication is a key is a key role here because communication, there are verbal and non-verbal communication which you need to handle in a such a difficult situation because it's not easy to break a bad news to the relatives or the next of kin where you are just telling them that because of their critical care illness or in the context of their critical care illness, at some point we are going to withdraw or switch our active treatment to a palliative treatment or because we think that this pathology is not I think it's a very hard thing. And I think the more we do it, the more we learn from it. And the more we do it, I think, uh, the more we do it, I think we find it more difficult because we are more engaged in the process. Um, yeah. The other question I would like to ask you, Julia, is that, what is the difference from your experience between end of life care and ceiling of care? What I find is really interesting topic because sometimes we draw ceilings of care, but we are not drawing and we don't draw the end of life care option here. We're just saying that these are the ceilings of care for this patient, but we are not saying that this patient is not for CPR or this patient we are going to switch him to palliative care. So what's your opinion about this topic? I think when we talk about ceilings of care, we, we're, we're giving the patient the maximum investment that we can in all our medical knowledge. We're calling in all the consultants and everyone that we know in order to give the maximum amount of care. However, we're also saying we're giving this maximum amount of care for a week, five days, how long are we gonna give these ceilings of care? And I, I wanted to share with you that my very first research that I did as a bedside nurse was in my ICU, our physicians would give doses of 64 milligrams of noradrenaline an hour and 50 milligrams of adrenaline an hour to patients. And I would always say to them, okay, why are we stopping at 50 milligrams an hour? Why don't we give 200, 500 milligrams an hour? Because that's the amount that fit into a 50 mil syringe. That's, that's, how, we, that's how we determine what ceiling of care was. 
So my first uh, research was to look for what is the maximal amount of dosage of vasopressors that I can give, and there would still be any sense of even a 1% chance of survival. So this changed our the climate in my ICU to, to, to know what the ceiling of care with vasopressors are. Because it because in no guidelines of sepsis guidelines or any guidelines, it says where you start your dosage, but it never says how far you can go. So um, ceilings of care is a very um, is a topic that, of course, say it's not just with the dosage, but it's also with the amount of time I'm going to give to the ceilings of care. While I'm giving ceilings of care or why I have um, determined with my team what the ceiling of care with each patient, I am communicating this with the family that we are giving everything 100% of what we know we're giving now to the patient and now we're waiting for a response, a disease response from the patient. So the family is on tune and they're also waiting for a response that we can say, a good response would be lowering of the fever, lowering of the normalization of the white blood cells of the CPR, some revitalization of the kidney functions, of the liver functions. And we're telling the family what we're expecting as a response from the from the disease, not from the patient. So while we're giving ceilings of care, we're also giving expectations of how long we will try to do this and what we're expecting to see as a response. I totally agree. I think there's a very delicate difference between ceilings of care and end of life care. And I think from a, from a physician perspective, I think when we when we reach to a state that we are drawing the line and saying that this is ceilings of care, this doesn't mean at all that we are saying that we are switching our active treatment to a palliative treatment or we are ending, we are starting the process of end of life care. We are trying to explain here that we have reached to, that, to an extent where we have abused or we have, we don't have enough physiological reserve where we can support more than that or support further. And that's that's the point where we draw and say, this is the ceilings of care. And I will take from what you have said, the example of vasopressors, because there has been a lot of research and literature about doses of vasopressors in intensive care. And to be honest with you, and I think different cohort of patients with different clinical scenarios will have different physiological or different pathological. So I totally agree with you. It's a different, it's a total, the two different entities, and we should make sure that we don't mix both of them. Um, so my next question to you, Julia, is that what do you think from your experience is the role of the concept of best of interest in the process of end-of-life care? When we talk about best interest for the patient, A, first we have to know what the patient would want. And if we have a chance to speak to that patient before we intubate him or before he cannot communicate with us, this is the best scenario. If we can communicate with that, what their wishes are directly from the patient himself. Um, if not, we have to rely on their surrogates or, and then we have to distinguish who the true surrogates are. 
as uh, we, I've been looking for the Ethicus 2 data, some physicians have written that a, a loved one has come in after five or six days of seeing no relative next to a patient, and they find out that this relative has not been in contact with the patient for many, many years. And But the neighbors and friends from the community center who have constantly been in contact with the patient can better, can better relate to us what the patient would want, I think that is number one confusion. Who would really know what is the best interest of my patient? If I can't hear from my patient, and then I have to rely on the surrogates, who is the most knowledgeable surrogate? Is it a family member who has not been in contact with, the, with this loved one, with this patient? Or is it friends and uh, and uh, acquaintances who are in contact with neighbors who are in contact with them daily, and and we have to find out from them what they think would be the best interest for the patient and not for them. And I think for a very loving family to distinguish what's best for the patient between what's best for the patient and what's best for them is very very difficult for a family. Very difficult, and we really have to work with them and say, I understand these are your feelings, but can you tell me what they would want? Knowing your father and knowing that you would want the best for your father, can you tell me what he would want? And then um, and then try to elicit a knowledgeable response from them. However, it's very hard for us to tell if the patient will be have a very bad quality of life or the patient will be uh, chronically on a ventilator. We also don't know how to predict what the future will be with this patient, unless we're absolutely sure that there's going to be no more response, that the, that the disease has far overcome what the patient can or the disease can overcome. I think, Julia, you're totally right. But I think what is more in, I think, which, which is what is more challenging is that when you think about the best of interest, concept in end-of-life care because you're assuming that the patient who you are taking the decision of best of interest in his end-of-life care process that this patient is not awake and not aware so we need to explore as you have kindly mentioned we need to explore what are his wishes for his end-of-life care we need to explore by speaking to the next of kin or to an advanced advanced directive, or at some, at some point as a physician and as a team, you will end up in a situation where you will have to take the decision and of the best of interest in the context of the clinical scenario. And I think this is a very, very challenging concept in this process. My other point of, I would say, discussion is that I think which is really difficult. I think, what do you think from your experience, Julian, about the role of organ donation in mm. after the end of life care process or in the process of end of life care? We have a very structured um, organ procuration and organ donation process in my country, very structured. Um, and we would call in the organ transplant specialist. This is a, a nurse who is, that's her specialty, is to ask the family for organs. Um, and we do that quite frequently. We we call in that special, that nurse specialist way before we're even, we're even 
contemplating that as a um, as a as an option. And they take tissue samples and they and they see if it's a, if, if it's a comparable option at all. Um, if the patient can donate organs or as a, in a physical state that they're not you know doesn't have um, a end stage liver failure, end stage uh, kidney failure, yes, we would absolutely um, ask for those organs if at all possible. I think this is a challenging situation, to be honest with you, but I think in the context of a design system and a design structure, I think this will make things easier. But I think the most challenging bit of it is that how to open up the discussion with uh, family and the next of kin. Yeah. Finally, yeah. Julia, I would like to ask you a very important aspect of the end-of-life care process. What are the consequences of this process on our on our on our colleagues, on the healthcare professionals? I think um, we should always have a debriefing before the end before a patient dies, and of course after have a debriefing with all the staff as many as we can get together and see what we did right and concentrate on what we did right, and if there's something that we should improve upon, talk about it as a team. Talk about as as you would any event that happens. It is a traumatic event, but if it is done correctly, there's nothing more satisfying and nothing being the epitome of being a professional is doing it right and having families come back and say you were you were wonderful and you made us feel warm and cared for and um, and I think this is what we have to strive for, Ahmed. We have to think of how we can do it right in order to leave that family with a sense of that they did, we all did everything we could possible for their loved one. And we're always here to listen to their, whatever they think. And um, if they have any consequences, we're here to, to listen. And we'd like to hear from them what they thought about their experience with the ICU. Uh, I think I think Julia, you're absolutely right, and I think I think debriefing is the key, is a fundamental thing in here. And I think uh, it's a very challenging, tricky, tough situation which consumes a lot of our emotions, and we might end up in a situation where we might feel that we might be in a burnout situation because we handle these situations on a daily basis. But I think talking and venting and having a debrief and maybe sometimes a hug might help and yeah. uh, might help a lot and and I think I think reflecting on it is also very important because when we reflect on our practice this means that we are having an insight of the process and we would like to improve and from here Julia yeah, that helps would... us a lot if we have the if we have the option to improve yeah Absolutely. And from here, Julia, I would say, I would like to ask you, what are the take-home messages, messages you would like to say to our listeners about the process of end-of-life care and its consequences? Um, first, I'd like us all to take time to read books on end-of-life care, whether in in the ICU setting or oncology setting or palliative care setting. Read as much as we can in order to gain information 
and reflect on what's good for us. Because I can give a workshop, a four-day workshop on communication. But if the words that I can say in my clinical area are comfortable for me, it doesn't mean that they're going to be comfortable for you. I can give you tips that I use and other clinicians use, but you are going to have to find what's best for you and how you like to communicate. So I have read many books. The Tibetan Book of Death and Dying is a very good book to read. Um, Every Deep Drawn Breath by Wes Ely is a very good book to read. So, and of course, articles by the famous uh, Randy Curtis and um, Doug White. And these are all very, very renowned experts on end-of-life care. And if we read from their experience, we can gain a, a level of confidence where we'll be, we'll be able to do it right. With those patients who have a long, drawn-out ICU stay, and we have time to get used to who they are and what they are, the end-of-life care is like almost a natural process if they don't respond to our efforts, if the disease does not respond to our efforts. But those trauma cases who come in and we try and we move and we and we're all adrenaline in there and we and the patient is lost and he and he dies. I think these are the most traumatic ones that we say, what could I have done? And I, I should have been smarter or I should have done something else. So I think the gamut the spectrum between those ones that we lose so quickly and the ones that are drawn out that it, that the end of life care becomes a passage of time, something that is natural in, in our care in, is, is a huge spectrum that we have to see how, how we deal with each, each scenario. Thank you, Julia. I think from also from a physician perspective, I would say a few bullet points, I would say it's something you, you guys will always see in your daily intensive care practice. So don't be frightened or scared. Just observe your seniors and see how do you do it. Listen to your patient, listen to, listen to your colleagues, have a debrief, communicate well, and, and just learn more and more about it because it's an important aspect in our daily ICU life. And by saying that, I would say thank you, Julia, for contributing to this really, really interesting podcast. And thank you once again. Thank you so much, Ahmed. It was a pleasure discussing this with you. Thank you. So everyone, have a nice day. And looking forward to hear from you in another podcast. Mm -hmm.